So, my name is Dutch Masters, and uh, my wife Carolyn will be married 50 years this October the 26th. We have no grandchildren. What can we do? <laughs> what? Y'all got anyone to give away? <laughs> yeah, we'll take them. So, what I want to do for the time that we have together this morning is talk a little bit about our lives and how things are run in our lives, and then about Parkinson's. Uh, I have Parkinson's, and uh, I just want to say in the front end, when we get to that part of it, we talk about that. That's something that's very near and dear to people. I I would not be surprised at all if a fully a third of you or more in this room knew somebody who had Parkinson's. Over 90,000 people a year are diagnosed with Parkinson's, and every one of them is different. So if I say anything that's offensive, I surely did not mean to be offensive, but some of these things are just kind of hard to talk about. So um, let's go. I was born on January 3rd, 1955 in Huntington, Tennessee, and my cousin, who was the county doctor's office, the office is still there. If you go to the courthouse square in Huntington, you come up from the east. On the right-hand side, three, three uh, buildings down is, was his office, and now it's a lawyer's office, and they will not let you go back there and look in the room where you were born. So I'm never going to use them. But uh, anyway, I was born in, in the... Uh, doctor's office, which is kind of different now, but back then I think a lot of people were born in a bed, on a table, or something like that, so I was sort of in that group. My mother had three boys. Um, my mom and dad were divorced when I was born, so I never really knew my dad that much, and uh, my mother had uh, met him at Dale Hollow Dam, if you know where that is, in Salina, Tennessee. When they were building the dam, my mother was the industrial nurse for, for the dam. So she's even got a, we have an old newspaper clipping of her and a couple of other people on the front where they took their picture and that was kind of neat. And Salina is kind of a different town if you've ever been there. Um, my mother only had a little advice for us, my other two brothers. She said, all of you have to go to college and all of you are going to have to pay for it because we don't have the money. And we did. So um, in my growing up years, I spent my summers in Huntington and my other time in Jackson, Tennessee. And really, I grew up in Jackson. But in Huntington, I was not known as Dutch or Andy, which is what she called me. I was Miss Jessie Flake's grandson. <laughs> and so you, your pedigree was how they introduce you to people, and that's and I, I, for, I still don't get it, but anyway, <laughs> that's what they do. My oldest brother, Mike, received a degree in uh, mathematics from David Lipscomb. Uh, he went to work in 66, 65 with the government at a uh, naval weapons facility in Virginia that was sort of a top secret thing, and he spent 40-something years there with them, and then he retired. My middle brother was a hippie, and uh, he spent time at UT Martin uh, playing in a rock band and letting his hair grow out, cultivating that long hair. So he went from Martin to UT Knoxville, and he had a job working for the U.S. Geological Survey folks, and he was driving his little Volkswagen Beetle down the road one day and came around on top of a hill overlooking a valley and pulled off. He just started crying. 
And he said, there has to be a God. And he said, I'm on the wrong side of him. So the next day he went to church at Laurel in Knoxville. And uh, in May when his grades came, remember they used to mail our grades to our parents, even in college, he said, I don't do that anymore. And he asked my mom, he said, Mom, did you, did you, open, did you open my grades? And she said, no, son, I just didn't have the heart to. <laughs> and, he said, and he said, well, you need to open them. So she opened them, and he had gone from D's and F's to straight A's. He never made less than an A for the rest of his time, which was a bachelor of science degree in uh, forestry, a bachelor's degree in science from, for wildlife biology, a master's degree from Abilene Christian in wildlife biology, and a dual doctorate in uh, fire ecology and wildlife biology at uh, Oh no, not OSU. Yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah, where Jumping Joe's is, not OU, but the other one. And he taught at OU in grad school for a while, and then he went to a research facility, and then he went back to Wisconsin, where he was the head of fire ecology for the University of Wisconsin. Pretty smart stuff, right? <laughs> well, the thing, the problem with all that is, I had nothing. <laughs> you know, I had, I had nothing that I could argue, I'm the best at this, or I'm doing better than other people in this. I just didn't have anything. In first grade, my first day of school, our teacher came around and she said, uh, I need you to say your alphabet. And I said, my what? And she said, the alphabet. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She says, you know, A, B, C, D. She says, I don't know what that is. And she says, well, we're going to have a special class for you for a couple of days. We'll send you out, and then you'll catch you up, and we'll bring you back in. What she didn't know was my grandmother taught me how to read. We did not have a TV set. We didn't have anything in our house to spend time doing other things, so we read. And my grandmother taught me how to read, and every Monday night we'd go up to the library in Jackson, Tennessee, and check out books, and that was my world. So a few hours later, she has everybody do show and tell, and I had a book that my brother Mike, who was going to school up here in Lipscomb, had just finished and sent me uh, down to Jackson to read, and it was called The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. So I'm reading The Hobbit, and I'm about a third of the way through, and I held it up as my show-and-tell thing. She says, you can't do that. And I, I didn't understand what she was saying. I said, yes, ma'am, it's right here. And she said, you can't read. And I said, I can read. She said, you don't know the alphabet. I said, I can read. So she said, read something. So I turned a page and read about Frodo the Hobbit and whatever. And she said, how can you do that? And I said, I don't know, but I can read. And so I, they, I, I was like Sheldon on his show. I was tested. And I could read at the fifth grade level and the first grade. The lesson from that is you don't have to know the alphabet to learn a language. <laughs> you know, that's something we threw in there extra that gets in the way, but you don't have to have an alphabet. You can, you have, and so I learned creative paths to do things, and that was one of the key things as an air traffic controller that made me successful is I didn't have to get, stay stuck in one mode, but I had the opportunity to go out and be divergent in whatever I chose to do, and that made a lot of difference. So, although my brothers are smarter than I am, I'm the better looking one. Okay. I don't know where that humor comes from. Um, Most humble, too. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, I am the best controller in the world, so that's what we always tell each other. So... Some of the things that we did growing up, which were kind of neat, I think, and were off the standard, is my oldest brother, Mike, who was the smartest one, um, 
made a telescope from Edmund Scientific Company where he ground the lenses and all that. And we, he put it together and at night for entertainment. My brothers and I would go out on clear nights and we would look at the sky and we'd find different planets or stars that we wouldn't look at and we'd make a little log of those where we found them. It was really neat and my brother would teach us the constellations and uh, we had a lot of fun. I mean, we actually had a lot of fun. On cloudy nights, the, my middle brother, who was more of the chemistry-oriented type person, would take Meriwether Lewis lye, strips of uh, aluminum foil, put them in a Coke bottle, shake them up a little bit till they started boiling like mad, put a balloon over the top of it, let it blow up, tie it, put a little string on it, light the string, the cotton string, and let it go, and it'd get up maybe 100 feet in the air, and it'd go poosh. And it was fantastic. <laughs> so we entertained ourselves with our own fireworks. That was pretty cool. That's a wild moment. Yes, it was. <laughs> and then uh, we had an AM, an old AM radio that we listened to KMOX on during the daytime and some of the nighttime listened to the ball games with the Cardinals. That was kind of fun. Uh, I couldn't even imagine what a baseball game was. I didn't see one until I was probably in the seventh, eight years old. Uh, but the other station we listened to is WLS in Chicago. So we had, <laughs> there you go, Carrie. So that was a great station. Anyway, we didn't have a lot, but we had enough. And uh, we just understood that. My work path began at eight years of age by cutting grass. My mother bought from somebody one of these barrel-bladed manual push mowers. I hated that thing. And that's motivation. That's motivation to find you a job that you don't hate what you're doing. And so it wasn't long that I graduated to doing the clippers that were manual. I hated that more. <laughs> so uh, at 12, I got a paper out. And the paper out was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I learned how to give good service. I learned how to listen to people and what they wanted and how they wanted it, and people are very particular about their paper. And so if it rained, that paper was always behind the storm door. And I walked my paper out because they didn't like ruts in the yard when it rained. And uh, if it snowed, same thing. We always, uh, whatever the owner of that house wanted, that's what we did. And I found out at Christmas time, I got paid more as a tip from the people in my paper route then I made money during a month. So this little light bulb comes on here and says, if you give good service and you're polite to the customer, you might just come out on top in this deal. And so that was, that was a very useful thing. Uh, from there, I went on my 16th birthday to Channel 7 in Jackson, Tennessee, where I worked a 3-11 shift uh, and paid my way through college. And so I worked 40 hours a week all the way through high school and watched TV for it. How neat is that? So that was fun, and I learned all kinds of things uh, from that responsibility. And then Miss Carolyn and I got married at 19 after she graduated from high school and I was still in college. Um, she learned pretty quick that I was just dumb. So I'll explain. Nobody told me. When you go on a honeymoon, you need to make reservations at a hotel. <laughs> Nobody told me that you need a credit card. Because if you get out some distant place and you don't have cash, you're up a creek without a paddle. 
So uh, we, went to, we decided to go to Gatlinburg on our honeymoon. Well, nobody told us the day we picked to get married, there was a Jehovah's Witness convention downtown Nashville. <laughs> and there was not an empty hotel room this, anywhere around here. So we went up to Cookville Cross, we don't really know. I shut down when the guy asked me, I told him we just got married. He said, do you want a water bed? And I was like, I'm, I'm done here with this. <laughs> so... Um, At my senior year at Freed Hardman, I didn't have enough money for the last semester. I just, we just didn't have it. And so E. Claude Gardner, the president of Freed Hardman, called me into his office and he said, I understand your situation. If you will convert to a Bible major, at that point I was a journalism major, he said, we will pay, give you a scholarship that will pay for the rest of your school and you can graduate. So I did. I think, so I became a Bible major and I thought, well, I, I don't know. And somebody said, well, now that you're a Bible major, you need to start preaching places. <laughs> so the first place I preached at was a place uh, in Natchez Trace State Park. Um, maybe 100 people went there to church, I don't know. But one of the engineers at Channel 7 said, hey, our preacher's sick, why don't you come preach for us Sunday? And I thought, well, yeah, I probably ought to do that, because I've not done that in I am a Bible major now. <laughs> so I went out there, Carol and I drove out there, and I had these beautiful prescription sunglasses that I wore when it's real bright and sunny. And uh, we got to our friend's house and got in his car to drive out to the church and left my car uh, in his driveway. And when I got out to the church, I realized that I didn't have my regular glasses, and their building was very dark. So if I took my glasses off to see, it was just a blur. But if I put my glasses on to see, it was a solid, it was worse. <laughs> so I had to preach my lesson by memory. And they paid me for that. <laughs> and I, I just couldn't believe it. So I, my call to preach was money, opportunity, uh, but I didn't see God in that much in those things. So the next thing that happened is I became a youth minister at one of the churches in Jackson. David Knox and I talked about that the other day, and uh, we knew a lot of the same people, I guess. But the elders at Allen and Edgewood had decided that they had entered the high-tech world. This was probably in 76 and they had bought an opaque overhead projector. Do you remember those? With the little acetate things you had to make and put on there? So they said, you need to do that because you're the youngest. So I made my little acetate slides, if you please, eight and a half by 11s. I had them in a little stack on the podium and I had the, the projector over here and everybody was watching in the church. This was a marvel to see this thing. And the I preached a lesson on the Beatitudes. So at the first lesson, I had just read the verses entering into that, we had a power failure. <laughs> On Sunday, see, so I think God sends you messages sometimes that you may think are, are not what you need, but actually they are what you need. And he was trying to tell me, you are not ready for this. So I graduated, we moved to Hornwall, Tennessee. And uh, in Hornwall, I was the bus minister of eight buses, youth director, and educational director. Basically, I did every job that the guy who preached didn't want. And I had fun. 
it was okay for a while. And then all of a sudden, we found out that our skin was very thin. People would find the, the smallest things to criticize you over, and it just was not me. I was not prepared for that, and so after about a year or so, I said, I can't do this anymore. So we quit uh, with Michelle, our daughter, on the way. I can, my timing is impeccable. <laughs> so uh, I, I was learning how to fly, and I flew up to Nashville uh, on one of my trips and ended up in the control tower meeting the people in there because of something that had happened. And I was fascinated by it. So when uh, they had an opening for air traffic people, I applied for it and was accepted in Fort Worth, Texas. And this is, this is all a thread that's fixing to run out of string, I promise. <laughs> so you have to go get a physical and do all kinds of paperwork for them when you go to work as a controller because they want to make sure that you're fit and good for the job. The last thing I had to do was go get an ophthalmologist to examine my eyes and tell them what my unaided visual acuity was. And for some unknown reason, the lady, his nurse that was with him, put down 2,400. You know what 2,400 is on the chart? That's the big E. And they're saying that that's what I could see as a minimum. Well, they threw my application out. They said, the guy's blind. There's no way he can work here for us. So we appealed it. I went to some other ophthalmologists, and the guy, the doctor wouldn't say we made a mistake, but he said upon further review, he can see 2,100. And so I called the people in Dallas, and they said, we don't need anybody right now. Our class is full. The next class that we have, you'll be on the list, and we'll pick you up. I said, okay. So a couple of years went by. We moved to different jobs in different places, and then on August the 3rd, 1981, uh, 1,400, 14,000 controllers went on strike. And the next day I got a phone call from Memphis and they said, you need to come down here and interview for a job. So I went to Memphis, we interviewed, and uh, about a month later I was in Oklahoma City and Carolyn stayed in Jackson with her parents. With John, We were pregnant with John then with our son on the way. And the new FAA didn't like what the union had done in the old FAA. So they told us every day is pass-fail. If you come in here and you don't make it, you're out. You have no right to appeal or anything else like that. So that's kind of scary, especially when you're living in New Mexico and you hadn't met anybody in New Mexico in your entire life until you moved there. But uh, we did okay. We did okay. And uh, so i got to hurry here. So anyway, after I had worked at Albuquerque for a while, I got transferred back to Memphis I spent the next 20 years as a controller in Memphis. I saw and did a lot of things that uh, were just incredible fun, and it was a great ride for me. When I retired in 2006, I went to work for a company called Lockheed Martin. And Lockheed Martin had built a new air traffic control system for the, the regional control centers in the nation. There's 20 of them. They're not associated with a tower cab or anything like that. They're in a radar room somewhere off by themselves. And so I went to work for Lockheed as a uh, subject matter expert on the system to teach <coughs> controllers how to use the system and, and to test the system and record any issues that we might have. Too bad so, you weren't as smart as your brothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we spent three years in Kansas. I spent three years in Atlanta as their site lead for Lockheed. 
Um, I was the first guy to do that as a non-FAA person, as, but as a contractor. Uh, we went to Leesburg, Virginia, Washington Center for three years, and then I variously worked at 12 other places, uh, centers across the United States, the last one being Dallas-Fort Worth. So when I walked in the door at Dallas and walked into the control room, the, the etiquette is that you always present your badge to the manager in the radar room. And he talks to you about where you've been and what you're doing. He's just checking you out to make sure you're not going to do something crazy. And so I told this guy about um, what had happened to me in uh, 78 and how the um, mistake that the lady made on my unaided visual acuity had put me three years behind in my job. And he smiled and he told me, well, son, he said, if you were going to be in the class in 78, right now you'd be on your last two radar sectors at Fort Worth Center. And he said, every one of those boys that were trainees went on strike, and they're not here. So this thing I wanted to do in 78, it took me all the way to about 2015, 2016, to figure out God had been watching over me. And that's, you know, when, when, you, when you figure out that he's listening, that's something. So... Okay, now we're going to change directions. So I retired, and uh, we had a deal in our family that we all go get physicals once a year so we know what we're doing. And we went for our physicals one day about 10 years ago. My wife went with me, which is normal, because she says I never listen. And my daughter showed up. And that was really unusual. So we we're talking to the doctor, and he says, well, is there any issues? And Carolyn says, we went riding bikes the other day, and he fell off his bike twice. And so my daughter says, and he's talking very softly. It's very difficult to understand him. So he tells me to stand up and close my eyes, and he pushes me, and I nearly hit the floor before he could catch me. He said, buddy, I'm sorry, but you got Parkinson's. And it's like, I didn't even know what that meant except some people shake, you know. Well, I'm a freezer, so I don't, I, I stop moving when that stuff starts with me. The neurologist we saw the, at first uh, was useless, pretty much. <laughs> she gave us some medication. She said, you're gonna have bad dreams with this. Be careful because you might uh, hit your wife. You might wanna consider separate beds. And so we went home, and, but she said nothing else. And so it took about uh, three nights to figure out she was right about the medicine. So I quit taking it and went back to see her. And she said, you can take this other stuff, but it'll only last for so long that you'll have nothing. But that's actually not true. And uh, she just hadn't gotten up to speed on that yet, I guess. So in desperation, we went to another neurologist here in Nashville at Centennial. And he was an older gentleman, and he was fantastic. And explained to me how the medication works, explained to me what I needed to be doing. <coughs> And uh, we had heard from a fellow out at the hills who was one of their ministers. He had Parkinson's, and he said, go to a movement specialist and exercise. And the more you exercise, the slower this disease becomes. So we put into Vanderbilt for a movement specialist. It took 13 months to get our guy, and he was worth the wait. In the meantime, we attended a seminar here in Nashville about uh, Parkinson's and <clears throat> I started a thing called Rock Steady Boxing, which is just a very aggressive exercise program, and it has slowed it down. 
So I don't know how long it's going to last. And, it, and I'm not here to say that Parkinson's is like a really bad thing because I know people, like you mentioned, somebody with breast cancer. In the book that I wrote, there have been several people who have told us that they had breast cancer, and they said, that's exactly how I feel in that. So I didn't realize that when I wrote this about that, that anybody who has issues like that is the same. And it also made me keenly aware that uh, you don't have to talk about this all the time. Like for at first, I would go around and tell everybody I have Parkinson's. And my wife said, don't do that. And so I had to stop. Um, <laughs> am I doing okay? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, I now go to see a movement specialist named Dr. Clausen at Vanderbilt. I've participated in five clinical trials, which were just absolutely a blast. And it does help. Two of the drugs that we took were, have come to market since then. So that was fun. Uh, and I have my days, like anybody else. You know, some days are good, some days are bad. It's just what you get. You wake up with it, and that's what you take for the day. And it's changed my thinking a lot about uh, things like that. So if you have one of the books... I just thought I might read a few things that... Well, tell, uh, tell them about why, how these poems came. Oh, uh, okay, I'll do that. Can I tell them about this first? Yeah. Has anybody ever read The Choice by uh, Edith Egger? This is a fantastic book about human suffering. This lady uh, was in Germany. She's Jewish. Her parents were killed at Auschwitz. And she's a she's still a she's a psychiatrist, but she's still a counselor in Southern California. She's ninety something years old, and she still does counseling. And she is outstanding. And I learned more from her than anything else I've read. So it's called The Choice. It's just a great book to read. And who's the author? Uh, Egger E G E R. Uh, Doctor Edith Ev Eva Egger. Um. So. After I stopped taking the medication, uh, Repenarol, that was going to make me crazy, and it did, I started taking some other stuff that was not near as uh, strong. But I'd wake up at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'd have this poem in my head. I've never written a line of poetry in my life before this happened. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, I do not know how to make things rhyme. I don't... None of that I know. But at this point, it just like be in my mind, and I think, man, that's cool. I'm going to write that down when I, when I get up in the morning. It'd be gone. So I went through several months of that, and Carolyn kept saying, well, just get up and go write them down. So the next time one hit, I got up, went in the office, and typed it out, and uh, sent it to a few friends, and they said, boy, that's pretty neat. As long as I did it like that, I could capture the poem and write it down, but I could not do it if I let it wait. One point uh, came to us, we were in our living room. You know, we were Church of Christ, so we didn't, couldn't dance. But we had been to a wedding of somebody's where they all danced. It looked like it was a lot of fun to me. And so we were kind of trying to practice to dance, which was funny. But uh, I started, at this point came, I just started saying it to her. And she said, I love that. Write that down. I said, okay, when the song finishes, I'll go do that. It was gone. So just that quickly, they come and they go, I guess. So what I'd like to do, if I can find it, 
Let's see here. It's page 29. As husbands, sometimes we know we're not perfect. And one day, Carolyn told me, she said, why do you never write anything about me? And I said, I don't know. Well, I did know. I just didn't want to say. So I'm going to read you what I wrote as her poem. Put your life on hold. This is page 29. Put your life on hold, I was told, so that you might be strong and bold. All dreams I had, both good and bad, I let them go and tried not to be sad. This is her talking to me in, in this part of it. You did good, I must say. There was more each week to your pay. Money, money, we did have money, but a meaningful life was not for your wife. Our kids came one by one. You made your deposit and you were done. Who listened to them no matter what? Who watched them grow and loved them a lot? I saw you off to work each day. Your job's so important, that's what you would say. Was I important? Did I get to say? Is my life significant in every way? I too did my job and you didn't notice. I raised our kids and made our home a showplace. Still staying at home, staying at home every day is harder, I think, harder perhaps than a radar scope on the blink. With whom did I share all my cares? Two kids who had a life free from all strife. Did they listen to my life ebb away as you went to work every day? We grew old together, didn't we? We worked hard keeping our house and our family. In time the kids grew and left our nest. There was hope for me, the future was best. But then you changed, you had your moment and once again I sat quietly without comment. You retired. But what about me? Let's go on the road and we shall see. So off we went to where the company sent and again each day you went to work uh, to play. And I stayed back trying to make a home out of an apartment much like a home. But I said nothing because this was my part to support you with all my heart. I love to you. Uh, I love you. Do you know that? I gave my life so that you could be get uh, fat. <laughs> Very honest question. <coughs> then you tell me you cannot move. Once again, I don't get my groove. I'll take care of you and never say what would I do like. What would it be like to if to have my own way? So that is my life, but to follow you until you die or until you are through. Then this is my response to her. My love, what can I say? I have done you wrong in every way. I've been faithful that I can say, but what good is that once I'm at bay? I could not see what it meant to be a man and a wife and partners indeed. I wish I was smarter, I really do, because true love would have, ha uh, would have appreciated you. I failed you, my love, and it is plain to see I failed you, and for this I grieve. How can I give you golden years when I can't move, a victim of my fears? I bought you a house, at last a home. I'll buy you anything that I am shown. But how do I mend our life or tend to a relationship where I did spend all of my time on me? Your dreams to end I did not intend. I do love you, I hope you know, but I fear it's too late to see you grow. So, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't get this until I got Parkinson's. So for me, I look at Parkinson's, I've learned so much as a blessing and not as a curse. I may not like some of the inconveniences of it, 
but it's really been a great thing for me. And I don't want it again. If he comes around and asks, hey, you want to turn that back in? I'm say, as long as I don't have to trade it for anything else, <laughs> I'm your man. <clears throat> so then I wanted to read y'all two other ones. And uh, Was that raw enough? Intense enough, maybe? Okay. Uh, here we go. Page 51. This point in the rose, we wrote at a friend's funeral. Uh, his daughter, had she passed away uh, from an overdose of drugs. And uh, they had struggled with her all of her adult life, trying to get off of them, and it just, she couldn't do it. So she died, and we went to the funeral. They buried her up here in a big cemetery near 24 and 40. Um, but at the end, as they were putting the casket down, all the pallbearers took their rosebuds and put them on top of the casket. Have you ever seen that? It's kind of, I guess it's kind of like a tradition where they take their little bud and they put it down in the casket and they say, go down. So when that happened, this poem came, just a snap of the fingers. The buried rose surely knows all the pain of our mind. It is a gift that sorts and sifts things others could not find. A token of love that begs God above to the departed to be kind. Placed on a casket, then Lord like a basket, the rose both the loved and the lover binds. A simple token that cannot be broken, it covers all the unsaid left behind. I place my rose above her heart to say I'm sorry we grew apart. I forgot the clock to wind and then we ran out of time. So, mm -hmm. then I was, Read that next to on 52. <coughs> on 52? You ought to read Michelle's poem. That was the funny one. Okay. I am broken down, but I am not broke. Money does not fix this, and that ain't no joke. Actually, says that is no joke. My time, my life has changed from what I imagined. A picture of my life hangs forgotten and abandoned. I saw life this way and that all my way. Is there another? I did, I, but I didn't get my say. Some things just seem to transcend. They bring comfort and do not bend. Indeed, our spirits will fly again, and we will rejoice in the end. Your love is like that. It does not fall flat. It brings me hope, and it helps me to cope. Your love is simple, never complex. Your heart is beautiful. It cannot be vexed. You are so precious. Indeed, you give me peace. And those things I... I so dread in life, you allow me to release. Thank you. So, oh, uh, Michelle's going to Memphis? Yeah. We have to end on some humor, I guess. <laughs> well, you Michelle. You enough if you can write these poems. They're pretty amazing. I bet y'all have kids like this. She's 42. 44. She still drives too fast. This is on page 20. My daughter drives fast. I'm riding in my daughter's car, going to Memphis town afar. I watch each car that we go past because we're going so very fast. I see the people in them and I wonder why we didn't all just fly. 
Each and every one has a story to tell, but if asked, some would say, go to hell, excuse me. <laughs> Others would smile and quickly say, come with me and share the day. Each of us on a journey, maybe we won't end up on a gurney. I hope we make it, I really do, because food and family are waiting for you. So to each car we pass, I say adieu in Memphis town, we will wait for you. Happy Thanksgiving to one and all. Tomorrow, take your meds and go to the mall. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <coughs> so I, that's really all I have to say. I just wanted, uh, I wanted to encourage, if you have someone in your family who has Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, whatever it is, uh, and you need somebody to talk to, there are plenty of care groups in the Nashville area and probably in this church that we don't know about. But find somebody to talk to. I mean, just go have a cup of coffee. and uh, You need friends. You need friends that you can share with, and you, can, you need friends who maybe have more wisdom than you do, you know. Um, Our door is always open. Yeah. Yeah. We counsel a lot of people with Parkinson's. And sadly, we counsel a lot of people who just ignore it. They, they have trouble accepting what's happened to them, and they just, they just quit right there. And they go down so fast, it's so sad. Uh, so if anybody is here like that, I don't want you to be that way, because I've seen enough of that.